due for release in the US in October. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. The U.S. economy contracts 2.9% in the first quarter. China Post reportedly seeks $4 billion in a Hong Kong IPO. And the New York Attorney General sues Barclays over dark pools. Our guests this morning are Ben Collette from Sunrise Brokers, Simon Powell from CLSA, and Darren Benson from CBRE. And in a few other headlines, Turkey sells some 200 tons of secret gold to Iran. And the U.S. Supreme Court slams the door on TV streaming service Aereo. The Supreme Court held uh, uh, or applied the uh, duck theory of jurisprudence. If it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. So what he's talking about there is uh, if it looks like a cable company, then it is a cable company and they have to pay money back to the broadcasters for the actual content. It's a fairly serious ruling out of the Supreme Court and we'll have more on the no streams for you story in just a moment. The U.S. Commerce Department says growth in the U.S. economy contracted 2.9 percent in the first quarter. You have to go all the way back to the crisis in 2009 for such a weak performance uh, in America. It was shrinking inventory horrible weather and a contraction in healthcare spending that hit and hurt. But forecasters do expect a big rebound in the second quarter. In just a few minutes, we'll get you the latest read on the Asian markets uh, uh, here and see how markets are turning over in the first five minutes of trade. The Supreme Court has ruled that streaming TV firm Aereo is providing an illegal service and it will be forced to shut down or pay broadcasters. They said that Aereo, from the consumer perspective, feels like a cable subscription because you have to pay something to watch the broadcast content. But on the other side, Aereo wasn't paying the broadcasters anything. So the Supreme Court said it looks like a sneaky way to be a kind of cable company, and we call that a cable company. And therefore, as a cable company, Aereo is going to have to pay broadcasters if it wants the content. A startup company lets customers in 11 U.S. cities watch broadcast TV over the Internet for $8 a month. Reed Hunt says it's a key ruling but won't affect the Internet or the cloud. This is a big victory for broadcasters, but not on the battleground of the Internet. The Supreme Court clearly said if we get an Internet case, we're going to think about it wholly new wholly differently. Uh, If we're talking about content from the cloud, we'll look at that new. If we look at the net neutrality decision that the Supreme that the FCC hasn't even reached yet, but eventually will be in the Supreme Court. This court said we'll look at that wholly new. Again, that's former FCC chairman Reid Hunt. Well, here's how the markets are moving now in Asia. Australia, not much change there. The ASX 200 up a point. And in Seoul, the Kospi is up a point as well. Japanese stocks have moved a little bit higher. The dollar yen is now 101.82, and that is not too much change, but that's the dollar a little weaker against the yen. The euro is trading at 1.362 U.S. dollars, and the pound is now at 13 Hong Kong dollars and 16 cents. We move quickly to Wall Street, where stocks were higher for the first time in three days. Monsanto 
Toronto announced a $10 billion stock buyback plan, and investors seemed to be able to look past the GDP number. Everybody knew it was going to be weak. It was a little weaker than what people expected, but still, the bounce back in the second quarter is said to be pretty strong and underway. The S&P 500 gained half a percent in 1959. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 49 points at 16867 The yield on the 10-year Treasury note fell two basis points to 2.56%. Well, we welcome Ben Collette now, head of Asian equities at Sunrise Brokers, to the program. Ben, good morning. Okay, so we don't have Ben uh, yet with us uh, on, on the program. I've got a couple of other stories to get to, and then we'll uh, start through with the flow on the guests. Uh, looking uh, at profits as a percentage of the S&P 500's price, that's uh, known as the earnings yield. Well, they were at 5.6%, and that exceeds the 2.6% yield on the 10-year Treasury note. And so that is leading to people to continue to pile into equities. The New York Attorney General has filed civil fraud charges against Barclays over its Dark Pools trading platform. Uh, The Attorney General says that Barclays favored high-frequency traders over other investors. The Attorney General says Barclays falsely represented the concentration of high-frequency traders in its platform. Okay, so uh, this is Money for Nothing. Time, eight minutes after eight o'clock. Nice to have you with us here on the program. A couple of other quick notes. Oil prices, $114 right on the button. And gold is now down $2.60 at $1,319.60 a troy ounce. Our first guest now this morning is Darren Benson, Executive Director of Industrial and Logistics Services with CBRE. Darren, good morning. Morning, Brian. So interesting uh, to to look at um, the whole situation with uh, with property here and uh, both residential office and also uh, uh, the the retail sections. Uh, what sort of um, what sort of outlook do you have for the rest of the year? It seems to be a quite interesting time. People setting aside fears of of interest rates. Um, business seems to be pretty solid. Retail doing okay, but weaker than before. Worried about uh, consumers from China. What's your outlook for the rest of the year? I think, Brian, um, basically my, my main focus on the industrial sector, but a general sentiment that we're finding is that it's a fairly stable um, situation and people are taking their bet whether it's going to go up or down, but I think generally it's um, more stable looking towards the end of this year. So are we expecting a lot of new companies to move in or is there a lot of churn within the market? Uh, you've noticed probably uh, quite a few big companies moving or looking to move part of their uh, activities outside of Central to Kowloon East, some to Kowloon West and elsewhere. What are you seeing? Sure. I think uh, in terms of uh, an Asian hub, Hong Kong is still very popular. Um, APAC in general is still pushing ahead much more strongly than Europe and US, even though they're starting to recover so we're certainly seeing demand in the market. Um, in, in terms of Kowloon East and, and even Kowloon West and, and the new territories is that Central is fairly contra- uh, constrained and uh, occupiers are looking for better value in, in other areas. Uh, there's certainly been a lot of um, supply brought on in Kowloon East where a lot of industrial buildings have been converted into office and offering uh, more opportunities for those occupiers. Is the government uh, moving aggressively to try to attract business here? Well, like I think uh, bodies like Invest Hong Kong are, are working um, as best they can. Um, obviously, Hong Kong and Singapore are fairly competitive. And, you know, when you're looking at headquarters type, uh, you're also looking at Shanghai, 
and, and China's promoting free trade zones and whatnot to try and get more business in there as well. So it's a, I think it's a fairly even playing field at the moment. I see in the notes that you've provided that um, our ranking in container throughput has slipped to fourth in the world uh, behind Shanghai, Singapore, and Shenzhen. Is this um, a major contribution at the moment to um, what we see happening with industrial and commercial space? I think Hong Kong, I mean, logistics is still one of our pillar industries and it's, it's very important for the economy generally. Um, it's, it's natural that over a period of time other places are going to start um, growing, whereas you know, Hong Kong is the port itself doesn't have a lot of expansion space and you know, most goods are being produced in China anyway, so the necessity to come through Hong Kong or come in via Hong Kong is probably going to diminish over time. Um, and at the same time, you've got you know, big infrastructure projects that are happening that will bring... In particularly, you know, the South China ports and the Hong Kong port, you know, integrate them more, more efficiently. From your perch, how does it actually feel? Um, does it feel like we're a, a little bit of a dying ember or does it feel robust and, and that things will get better? Well, it's an interesting point is that on the industrialist out there, um, you know, this business still needs to be done in Hong Kong. So you've got, you know, people producing food um, for the general population here. You've got uh, health and pharmaceutical uh, companies doing well. Um, you've got a big, big booming data center sector as well. So there is new industry emerging in Hong Kong. But um, at the same time, the government's been very much focused on promoting residential and, and office and retail land usage, which is, has taken a lot of stock off the market. So at the moment, we are finding vacancy levels at only around 1%, um, which is causing a great deal of difficulty for occupiers, particularly logistic companies and whatnot, to find space. Um, it's obviously pushed up rents at the same time. And at the moment, there doesn't seem to be any real great plan to, to address that. How are prices at the moment? Um, well, we found in the last two or three years, rental prices in general have been pushing up around 2% quarter on quarter. Um, it's slowed up a little bit now, but it's still pushing ahead well. Um, in ca- capital values have you know, increased in, in many respects, um, doubled over this last you know, two to three years. There's been some very big windfalls for some of those um, industrialists or investors and developers holding properties. Um, the bulk of that has come about with the revitalization policy where people holding old industrial buildings have had the opportunity to, to change them into office, hotel, um, retail particularly, at, at a new waiver. So that really has spurred on a lot of activity and there's a lot of purchasing going on for, for that purpose. I see here in the notes also that you have identified the vehicle sector uh, as an area that's struggling to find space. I, I didn't know that we had much of a vehicle sector. Um, well, when everyone's driving cars, they need somewhere to get their car fixed. And they also need somewhere to, to go and buy a car. So, you know, typically in most Western markets, you have, you know, some highways that have, you know, large 4S type centres where, where there's a display where you can go and get your car fixed. But in Hong Kong, you know, mostly they've been within areas like Aberdeen or Apli Chow or, you know, around Kowloon East. But those guys are being very much being squeezed out at the moment because of the higher rental costs and the change of use of the building. So, you know, although they'd like to be in a high-profile locations, many of them are now, you know, hunting sites way out in the new territories. Um, which, which is not perfectly ideal for their business model, but, you know, they have uh, limited other choice. And even finding something out there is, is very difficult as well. 
And if we look forward, um, well, let's look backward first uh, to throw the question in the right context. Uh, if you go back uh, several years, you could kind of see that supply in residential was somewhat lacking and that price pressures would probably be to the upside. Uh, what about, you know, this is a tricky environment right now um, with the government uh, constraints uh, that they've put in and with, you know, coming out of the, uh, the Great Recession uh, – in terms of looking at supply coming online over the next, say, three to five years in the industrial sector, um, is it about on par? Is it light or will it be heavy? Oh, we're still seeing a net loss of uh, industrial space in the market, uh, you know, particularly with the revitalization policy. There's around 100 industrial buildings at the moment that are earmarked for change of use. Um, there's also large areas of land that are um, in- indicated for rezoning to um, residential and other uses. Um, and, a, and a very large portion out in the outer new territories, which are used as, as buck-up container storage or um, storage of construction equipment, and whatnot. That's all planned for these new towns. So I, I think you know, going forward at the moment, there's real concern on whether there will be enough supply of industrial land. Um, the other point to note is that we do have three large industrial estates um, in Hong Kong, over 200 hectares, and at, at they're pretty much all full house at the moment as well. Um, there was an ability for you know new occupiers to come into those estates, but at the moment that's been suspended. So, you know, if you're an industrialist looking for a, you know 100, 200, 300,000 square feet at the moment, there is almost no opportunities in the market. There's such great opportunities in many American cities of uh, industrial space that's been converted to residential. They turn them into really interesting loft apartments, condos, uh, you know, loft apartments with with um, you know kind of rough-edged feel to it. People seem to like it. Why is it taking so long in Hong Kong for the government to convert industrial uh, space to residential? I think there's a number of issues around it. It's not quite as simple here in Hong Kong. The building shapes are different. A lot of the floor plates are very large. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an Australian, and you know, I've seen big developments there as well, where you, the wool stores were redeveloped. And but these had, you know, big facades, historical significance, and really could brush up well. And in Hong Kong, it's a little bit difficult. The, the actual structure, you've got fire service issues and, and, a, and a host of other issues with your proximity to other buildings. Um, it's certainly not impossible, and there's a lot of people out there that have taken it upon themselves to uh, rent or buy industrial space and uh, kind of keeping keeping under the radar and using these properties as residential. Yeah, you'd think that people would support this, uh, but uh, obviously there are a lot of um, restrictions and, and complaint or uh, constraints that, that you mentioned. Uh, but um, anyway, okay, Darren, uh, it's uh, great to have you on the program. Uh, I've got my next guest lined up. Uh, we had a little trouble there at the beginning, but it looks like we're uh, you know cooking with oil at the moment. So, uh, Darren, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Darren sure. Benson, Executive Director, Industrial and Logistics Services with CBRE. Money for nothing, the time 17 minutes after 8 o'clock. It's very good to have you tuned in here to Radio 3, where we look at business and finance on this program. The U.S. Commerce Department has reportedly given a couple of energy companies permission to ship oil to foreign buyers. This is pretty significant if it turns out to be true. So far, it's just a report in the uh, Wall Street Journal, but it would mean a loosening of a nearly 40-year ban on oil exports. There's always so much to talk about in the oil industry, and we welcome Simon Powell, head of Asian Oil and Gas Research at CLSA. Simon, good morning. 
Good morning, Brian. Good morning. Yes, I mean, just tell our audience for a moment why this would be a big deal if it turns out to be true. I mean, we have kind of thought that this was coming, but the 40-year ban on oil expert, uh, exports, uh, the U.S. is now starting to produce a lot more oil. Will it, will it be a game-changer? Um, y- yes, it will be a game-changer if, if, if it is true. Uh, we saw the news as well. I just want to clarify, basically what uh, federal officials have told uh, these two companies is that they can export a kind of ultra-light crude. It's a distillate. Yeah. It's, I mean, essentially, the U.S. has been producing normal crude that you and I would see as crude, but it's also been producing a lot of associated gas liquids with all the shale gas that it produces. So it's a little bit like crude. Um, it, it, it serves the same purpose once you refine it. Um, if they do go ahead and allow exports, it will do a couple of things. Number one, it'll start to narrow this gap that we've seen between Brent, which is essentially European pricing, and West Texas, which is U.S. pricing. West Texas has been trading at much lower levels because the U.S. has had much more crude sloshing around in its markets. Uh, yes. Uh, so is there any consequence? What is the main consequence of that uh, gap being narrowed? Well, I think um, I think I think the, the key consequences and we've already seen seen it and the markets have started to price it is that the volatility in oil prices has been going down. If the, there are indexes that measure volatility in oil prices and we are at historically low levels, even despite this activity in Iraq. And what that tells you is the market sees the U.S. as continuing to increase production of shale gas liquids um, and becoming almost, not quite, but almost like a second uh, Saudi Arabia in the market, which which acts as a big kind of uh, calming act- action on the market. Some people are a bit calmer that if things do kick off potentially in Iraq, then potentially the U.S. could actually produce uh, a lot of what is required. So it will take a little bit of the risk premium out of the price of oil? Well, I think it's already out. I mean, think about it. Uh, we saw this, we saw this uh, insurgency in northwest of Iraq, and Brent only went up, you know, five ten dollars a barrel. Which, when you think about how important Iraq is in terms of current crude production at about three and a half million barrels, but also think about how much store the IEA was placing on Iraq for future production, it was surprising to us how little uh, oil jumped. And I think. Uh, we will see if this insurgency spreads to the southeast producing regions of Iraq, then you will see a much bigger reaction by the markets. But but it does go back to what I said at the beginning that, you know, with the U.S. producing as much liquid as it is producing and then the, the idea that they could potentially export it, it, it does calm the markets a little bit. You said on the program last time uh, that you sort of favored, um, well, you named a couple of companies. Uh, PetroChina, I think, was one. Uh, Anton uh, Anton Oil, another. Um, looking uh, at the move that we've seen, uh, do you think that it's kind of run its course now? Uh, because I started to hear a little bit more from traders about, um, you know, thinking that, that this has kind of run its course. Well, as far as PetroChina is concerned, the... the the idea that people should be owning this stock was less to do with oil price movements and more to do with natural gas price movements in China. And we think we think there'll be some announcements from central government later this year relating to further increases in natural gas prices. Uh, China wants to lift its gas prices to something closer to oil price levels, and, and that's one of the key theses. If the question is also, though, has oil run its course, it really depends on whether you believe this 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 uh, action in Iraq is going to calm down or escalate. If it does escalate and Iraq was to lose 
a million barrels, if it's three and a half million barrels a day of production, um, or even more, oil prices could go another $20 a barrel in the short term because we are a little bit tight going into the second half. And obviously, stocks that are leveraged to oil price increases are are predominantly EMP companies like CNOC or PetroChina, uh, at least in our region. I just see here in some notes uh, from Bloomberg about things to watch today, uh, mm-hmm. China Gas, uh, that's 384 here, uh, mm-hmm. that it sees sales tripling by 2020. Yeah, we, 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 would, we would concur with that. I mean, it's, it's the volume game. You know, you think about it. Gas penetration in China is very, very low relative to other Asian countries and especially relative to OECD countries. So, you know, gas as a percentage of China's energy mix is about 4 or 5%. You know, the rest of Asia, it's 10%, and in OECD countries, it's 20 So add to that that Beijing wants to clean up the environment and reduce some of this dreadful smog that they've been experiencing. There's a huge push by government away from dirtier fuels to what they perceive as cleaner fuels, and gas is definitely right in that mix. So uh, the government wants to push more consumption of gas. They're building more pipelines, and so easily throughput through the pipes could easily double, if not triple. So on your list of favored companies, um, you know, say the top two or three, what would they be? Well, in my space, and, and, and I cover the oil and gas side, so definitely PetroChina is, is still top of the list. We do like some of the oil service names, although we caution that uh, valuations can be a bit rich from a price-to-earnings point of view, um, the market pricing and a lot of expectation. But China will drill a lot of holes. If gas prices go up, then the incentive for gas companies to drill more holes um, is there. So you need people should look potentially at SPT, PetroKing, Anton as the independent names. Um, and Kosol is still one to watch because uh, the Chinese are going to drill a lot of holes in the South China Sea and everywhere else. Again, looking for liquids and looking for gas. If you don't follow some of the uh, international oil majors, um, do you have some thoughts on, uh, you know, uh, some of the big ones, uh, you know, thinking of, of companies like Chevron, Exxon and and um, BP, you know, those companies, yep. Uh, yep. Do, do things look pretty solid out for the next three to five years? Um, the, the big challenge for the global integrated names is, 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 find, is finding and discovery costs are very high. Getting, getting quite hard to find oil and bring it to market. Um, and therefore, sometimes the returns on invested capital are not as good on new projects as they are on old. So uh, the reason to own some of those names is much more to do with dividends and buybacks. Um, and look, we, we, we don't cover Exxon. We don't cover some of those names. The, the, what I would say, though, is that the valuations of those companies relative to oil prices actually got quite cheap at the beginning of the year. Now, they have been running um, and they will potentially continue to run on oil prices going higher. So, yes, there's some value in the global integrated names. But, but looking forward two, three, four years, um, find and discovery costs are going to make it very hard for them to deliver meaningful meaningful growth in in production and the refining space is going to be challenging for these names as well so there are difficult uh, roads ahead for large oil companies and just final question uh, simon uh, you re- you made a reference earlier to uh, the fact that uh, even with some of these dislocations uh, the violence in syria the violence in iraq that that the oil price hasn't uh, run too far to the upside. I mean, it did mm. gain four or five percent uh, last week. This mm. week, relatively stable, one hundred and fourteen dollars twenty-two cents. Now, uh, yep. kind of started. Uh, we've been around that one thirteen, one fourteen area. But yep. overall, uh, overall, I, I think you'd have to 
say that markets generally haven't responded that much, not just oil, but markets generally, equity markets. Um, there hasn't been a lot of movement as a result of, of what's happening there. Um, can you speculate as to why? Yeah, I, well, uh, it, it's always difficult to speculate about you know, stuff in Iraq. Um, you know, I, I get a lot of my information the same way everyone else does from the news and, and, and reading the newspapers and, and, and people commenting. I, I think the markets are basically guessing that these guys aren't going to make too much inroads into the southeast of Iraq, that they're going to be held back and uh, out of Baghdad, and that uh, the U.S. isn't going to wade in or, or anyone else going to wade in with large commitments to mobilize forces again. So I think what the markets are saying is providing Iraq continues to produce three and a half million barrels a day um, and that, that export remains relatively uninterrupted, um, the fighting and, and the dreadful things we're seeing going on in the Northeast don't really impact markets. I, th I think that's what the markets are saying, and they're saying that the U.S. isn't going to get dragged in to another uh, Iraq war. Yeah. Okay, Simon, thanks very much. Uh, I've got a little extra time today, which I wanted. Uh, thank you very much, and we'll talk again soon. Simon Powell, head of Asian Oil and Gas Research at CLSA. A few other notes to tell you about. Uh, Postal Savings Bank of China, the lending arm of China Post, is planning to seek $4 billion, a little more than $4 billion, in an IPO in Hong Kong and Shanghai. Now, this is from people with knowledge of the matter, according to Bloomberg. The Beijing-based bank will seek to list as soon as next year, according to these people. Postal Savings Bank plans to select investment banks for the IPO in the second half of this year. A couple of other interesting notes also moving uh, through uh, the Bloomberg. China's property price decline will attract funds to the stock market, according to a front-page front commentary in the China Securities Journal by uh, their reporter Long Yue. And also um, Beijing has approved a plan for, for state-owned enterprises reform and may, may release it soon. That from the Shanghai News. You're listening to Money for Nothing. We'll wrap things up for you in just a moment. Come get your e-com story. All right. Well, nice to have you with us here on the program. The Nikkei up 68 points, 15,335. So it's actually a day of green numbers this morning. All the markets are higher, not by a lot, but between about a third and a half of a percent. We see gains in Seoul, also in Australia, where the ASX 200 is up 17 points at 5404. Uh, the renminbi is now trading at about 623 against the U.S. dollar, but the fix is right there around 615. That's where it's been, but trading quite a little bit weaker. The Australian dollar Strengthening a bit, up over 94 cents at 94.05 U.S. cents. Gold priced at $1,319.60. And as you mentioned, oil is now trading at $114.22 a barrel. Here's how the weather looks today as we go out, then into the news, then into back chat. Danny Giddings hosting this morning. The forecast hot with sunny periods. 
And there will be a few showers expected, but there's no mention of any thunder showers, goodness sakes, for uh, for the first time in many days. 32 degrees will be the high today, and it's going to become fine and hot over the next few days. Thanks for joining us here today on Money for Nothing. News with Samantha Butler. The Iraqi Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki has rejected growing international calls for a national salvation government to counter the challenge of Sunni insurgents. NATO leaders have backed the U.S. in urging Iraq's leaders to form a unity government as soon as possible. But in his weekly televised address, Mr. Maliki said such calls threatened the country's constitution. <laughs> It is no secret to all Iraqis the dangerous goals behind the call for the formation of a national salvation government, as they call it. It is simply an attempt by those who rebel against the constitution to end the young democratic process and confiscate the opinions of the voters and circumvent the constitution. The American Secretary of State John Kerry has urged President Putin to publicly call on pro-Russian separatists in Ukraine to lay down their arms. Speaking after a meeting of NATO foreign ministers in Brussels, Mr Kerry said Russia must take action to prove it was fully committed to peace or face penalties from the United States and Europe. Until Russia fully makes that kind of commitment to the peace process and to the stability of Ukraine, the United States and Europe are compelled to continue to prepare greater costs, including tough economic sanctions, with the hope